Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if you need a Bible to follow along in the Bible study, just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring a Bible to you so that you can follow along in the study. Second Thessalonians chapter one. Bible scholars separate the ministry of the Apostle Paul into three distinct missionary journeys. If you were to ask Paul, he would probably consider his ministry to be one missionary journey, one continual relationship and service to the Lord. But for the sake of studying Paul's life and following his footsteps as we see him in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, it is segregated into three separate journeys. And it's in the midst of the second of those three that the Apostle Paul founded the church that is in Thessalonica. It was very early in his European tour when he first crossed into the continent of Europe and he found himself in the city of Thessalonica and of all the places that the apostle Paul planted churches it was Thessalonica that he spent the least amount of time he was only there for three weeks before he was forced out by rioting and intense persecution that had come because of the ministry that he was performing there amongst the Thessalonian people. And it wasn't long after that that he found himself 200 miles south in the city of Corinth with a burden in his heart for the well-being of the Christians that were in Thessalonica. And so he sent Timothy, who was his right-hand man, his favorite co-laborer that he had with him throughout his travels and he told Timothy to go to Thessalonica and to find out what's going on there encourage them establish them and observe them and then bring a report back so that I can know if they're falling away from the Lord if the persecution has overcome them or if they're thriving and doing well in the things of the Lord and so Timothy goes to Thessalonica And then brings word back to Paul, who is in Corinth. And the report was that the church was, in fact, thriving. That they were growing in their faith. That they were filled with hope. That they were abounding in love towards each other. But they were also confused because of the persecution they were facing and the tribulation they were experiencing because of their Christian faith. And so they were concerned. They didn't understand why they were going through what they were going through. Thus, the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. I'm I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians, the epistle that we just finished up last week, in which he was seeking to explain to them the reality of trials and tribulations in the Christian life, but also to communicate to them that the life that we live as Christians is one of hope. And so he inspires them to hope, and specifically hoping for the second coming of Jesus Christ, the thing that's mentioned above anything else in the epistle of 1 Thessalonians. Well, the messenger who brought 1 Thessalonians delivers the letter, brings them the message from Paul, reads it among them, but then is bombarded with questions. If you recall, the, 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 the bulk of what Paul spoke of in the second half of 1 Thessalonians was concerning the second coming of Christ, the end times. And in any congregation where that topic is broached, questions arise. And so the Thessalonians had questions for Paul concerning the things that he had explained to them in his epistle. And so the messenger returns to Paul... And, and, and lets Paul know what the concerns and questions are. And Paul immediately then writes Second Thessalonians and sends it back to the city there with the answers to their questions. 
So essentially, 2 Thessalonians, the epistle that we begin studying tonight, is an expansion upon some of the things that he shared with them in his first epistle, specifically concerning the end times, the period of time known as the tribulation, and the person of the Antichrist, or the one world dictator that the Bible teaches will come on the scene in the last days. And then in chapter 3, Paul just gives them another uh, word of something that was concerning him about something going on there in the city. And so Second Thessalonians is an expansion upon what we heard in the first. And so chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes, he writes, Paul and Silvanus, which was Silas, and Timothy, unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A very standard greeting for Paul as he introduces his epistle to the churches. But To the Thessalonians, in both the first and the second, he begins the same way by reminding them, first of all, that they are in God the Father. And that's a great comfort, I'm sure, to the Thessalonians who were receiving the epistle, and it also is to us to understand and realize that once we accept Christ and come to a knowledge of the Savior, to be found in God... And in Christ is not something that we attain over time and through our effort, nor is it something that we have to maintain through our continual paying of dues and devotions and this type of thing. But rather, we are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ from the first moment that we accept the gift of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. At that moment that we receive him, we are accepted in him. We are in. It's not something that we earn or attain or maintain. It's something that is. Every promise of God, every thing that God has said, every benefit that comes from being his child, every promise of what he's going to do within our lives becomes ours at the moment of salvation. We pass from darkness to light. We pass from death to life. It isn't a process of change over time. It is a positional change that happens the moment the transaction of salvation takes place. And so Paul confidently writes to them and he says, look, you are in. And therefore, towards you is extended grace and peace from God and from his son. Grace and peace are the Siamese twins of the New Testament. They're always coupled side by side together and always in that order. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Now, mercy, which is sometimes confused with grace, mercy is not getting what we do deserve, right? What do we deserve? We deserve hell. We deserve wrath. We deserve judgment. But because we receive God's mercy, we're not recipients of hell or of wrath or of judgment. And so mercy has been extended to us not getting what we do deserve, but God goes one step further and he also extends to us grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. In fact, it's an acronym for those of you that remember things with language. G-R-A-C-E. It stands for God's Riches at Christ's Expense. And that's what God has given to us. He's given to us grace through the person of his son. The blessing that we don't deserve. And because we have received the grace of God, we are able to now experience the peace of God. You cannot experience the peace of God until you've experienced the grace of God. But once you've experienced the grace of God, then you can experience and do experience the peace of God. And so towards us, because we are in God and in Christ, we are recipients of grace and peace. That's God's heart towards us. It's his will for us. It's what he longs that we experience and walk in. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he moves from his greeting to his introduction in verse 3. He says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. 
as it is meet or fitting. Because, and here's why we give thanks, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of each one of you towards, or of all, towards each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. He says, I give thanks to God for you, first of all, because your faith is growing exceedingly. How does a person's faith grow? It's interesting to me to consider or or to listen to people sometimes when they'll say to me or they'll say to you and they'll say, I have such a hard time believing God or I have such a hard time trusting God or have such a hard time demonstrating faith. And often the reason why someone struggles with their faith or has difficulty believing God is because they don't know God. Because when you know God, it's really not that hard to trust God. And so to not trust God is often the evidence that you don't really know God. And so the way that someone's faith grows is by getting to know God. How do you get to know God? Through his word. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. And he said, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Because the more you immerse yourself in the promises of God and in the word of God and and, and understand and comprehend the testimonies of God and see the things that he's done and then experience it within your life, the more you, you come into a relationship with God, the more you know God. And the more that you know God, the more you're going to trust God. And so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so faith grows as we give ourselves to an understanding of who God is as he's revealed himself in his word. And Paul commends them. He says, we give thanks for you because your faith grows exceedingly. You are growing quickly. You're growing strong in the things of God. And when your faith grows, automatically your fruit is going to grow. And that's what Paul says next. He says, not only is your faith growing, but also the charity. The word is agape, which is, our we we use the word love. He says that your love is growing, every one of you all, towards each other, abounding. And so, because their faith was growing, and their relationship with God was growing, so also was the character of Christ. Christ being cultivated within them, and thus there was a growth in this outward demonstration of Christian love towards one another. And then in verse 4, the proof that faith and love were growing within their lives, he says, so that we ourselves glory in you. We brag about you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. The evidence that you're in, that you're growing, and that your love is abounding is that under this intensity of persecution and tribulation, you're not drawing away from God, but rather you're pressing in. You're enduring. You're patiently awaiting and trusting even though the situation is dark and bleak. So he leaves his introduction, and in verse 5, he begins to get into his topic. Now, understand this, that at some point after the departure of Paul from Thessalonica and the time that he wrote unto them his first letter, a letter came to the Thessalonian church that had the signature of Paul, but yet it was a forgery. It wasn't Paul that wrote the letter. It was someone that wrote in his name and, then, and, and sent it to the church, hoping to in some way influence them with some false doctrine, having a false motive. And, and what that letter said, and we'll discover it as we cross into chapter 2 a little bit later, is that they were told or being told that because they were experiencing trouble, persecution, and difficulty, that that meant that they were in the period of the Great Tribulation and that they had missed the rapture and that they were experiencing wrath at the hand of God because of what was coming upon them. And so they had received this letter thinking it was from Paul 
telling them that they were in the great tribulation. Now, if you're suffering persecution and tribulation, that's not hard to believe. And so they were swayed by it. They were moved by it. And now Paul begins to refute it. And the first thing that he does in these next verses is that he draws a distinction between tribulation that comes from man because of God and tribulation that will come upon man from God. That is, in the time that God does pour out his wrath during the seven-year period of judgment that is yet to come. And so he draws this distinction in verse 5. Notice, he says, which, this persecution, this tribulation, he says, which is a manifest token, or you might have in your translation, a sure sign of the righteous judgment of God that you might be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. In other words, the tribulation that you're going through, the persecution that you're feeling because of your Christian faith is not evidence that you're in the wrath of God, but rather it's the exact opposite. It's rather proof that you are, in fact, saved. The fact that you're suffering this persecution and going through these difficult times is a sure sign, a manifest token that you are counted worthy of his kingdom. Jesus said, if they have persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. And if they hated me, they will hate you. And thus, the Thessalonians are just experiencing what all that had gone before and all that would come after have experienced and tasted. It's the hatred of the world. It's a sure sign that you're worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. However... Verse 6, seeing, he says, it is a righteous thing with God to recompense or to repay tribulation to them that trouble you. Now, I don't know about you, but that verse is almost worn out in my Bible. You know, from highlighting it a thousand times and underlining it and memorizing it and quoting it. Lord, you said that you are going to repay tribulation towards them that trouble me. Oh, Lord, I love that promise of God, you know, (laughs) whatever. He's not talking about now. He's talking about in the time of the tribulation that is yet to come. But notice the contrast in verse 7. He says, and to you who are troubled now. In other words, God is going to repay those that trouble you. It's coming. But to those of you that are troubled now, not from the hand of God, but at the hand of men, because you believe in God, notice what you will receive, verse 7. But to you who are troubled with us, rest with us when the Lord shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In other words, yes, you're going through it right now. They're persecuting you now. They're calling you a Jesus freak now. They've got every creative thing to call you, you know, born-againers and fundies and, you know, all kinds. They're doing that now. But there's a time of trouble that's coming upon them then, and you at that time will rest with us. You're not going to be here when that happens. And then he explains what that is as he comes into verse 8. He's contrasted the tribulation that comes from man and the tribulation that comes from God. And now he gives the description of the tribulation that's coming from God in verse 8. He says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance upon them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. He says a lot of things in just a few sentences here. But the first of which that I want to bring to your attention is the way by which a man or a woman escapes the coming wrath. How is it that the Thessalonians are promised glory in the day of tribulation? And the way, the means by which they will experience rest and glory is because they simply believed the gospel. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
they came clean with God and they confessed their need that they couldn't save themselves and they received the price that he paid on the cross for their sins. They went into a transaction with God where their guilt was transferred upon him and his righteousness and forgiveness was transferred upon them and they were brought into a place of salvation given a free gift of righteousness. And at the moment that they believed the testimony that was given to them and they received it, they were translated into salvation and therefore they will not endure the vengeance that Paul describes back up in verse 8. You say, well, what's this vengeance, taking vengeance? I mean, that sounds, that sounds heavy. I mean, we've heard of vengeance from people or vengeance from bitterness or vengeance from the mafia or something, but what is vengeance from God? Well, he describes it, verse 9, as those who will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And the reason for it is because they simply believed not in the salvation that was provided through Jesus Christ. And without excuse in that day. The Bible says that there are three things that bear witness to the truth of God's existence and to his son. First of all, creation. Creation, Romans chapter 1, tells us, testifies to every man, woman, and child that ever lived that there is a creator. To ignore the creator in creation is to, Paul says, suppress the truth. Because if you take an honest look, a child can understand and perceive that this came from something. It isn't a fortuitous concurrence of accidental circumstance, as they like to call it, you know. So creation testifies, and so for a man to ignore the testimony of creation in a suppressing of the truth is to deny the existence of a holy God in order to exalt and elevate his own standing. The second witness, not just creation, but also conscience that is within. Our conscience, even from a young age, every one of us, the Bible says, is given a conscience that testifies to us that there is a right way and that there is a wrong way. That there are things that are acceptable and things that are not acceptable. There's a conscience that will not let us excuse the unknown, that draws out from within us questions of our origins and of our destiny and to search out what is the truth of what is going on in this world and in this creation, this existence that we're in. And so for a person to ignore their conscience is to suppress the truth and to hold God at a distance and say that he doesn't exist in an endeavor to elevate oneself. And the third means of testimony of God's gospel, his forgiveness, is not just creation and not just conscience, but also Christians. The born-againers, the fundies, the Bible-thumpers, you and I. Those that go and, and share with them the goodness of what God has done in sending his son to pay the penalty that sin caused, deserved. And yet he was willing to do it. And so for a person to ignore the testimony of creation and also of conscience and then also to, then to persecute and suppress the testimony of the Christian is to deny the only Lord God that did everything in his power to keep any person from ever having to go to hell. And a person that denies that unto the day of their death and refuses it, that person becomes worthy of the eternal vengeance of God that Paul Spock talks about here in verse 9. Some would say, well, the Apostle Paul never spoke about hell. We know that there's no hell because if there was a hell, then certainly Paul would have talked about hell, and Paul never talks about hell. And you know what? It's true. Paul never uses the word hell. You could type it into a concordance, and you will never find that word, that Greek word, coming off of the mouth or the pen of the Apostle Paul. He didn't talk about hell, but this sure describes it, doesn't it? With eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. That's a description of hell. And though some would try to tell you and I that there is no such thing as hell or that a God of love would never send a person to hell, they ignore the fact that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Fifteen times in the Gospels, Jesus described hell as a literal, 
eternal, painful place that nobody wants to go. And the good news is that nobody has to go there because God has done everything in his means to pay the price so that no one has to, but a person must come to him. A person must ask for their sins to be forgiven and for a person to ignore the salvation and to push God out. They won't be sentenced to hell by God, but they will send themselves there over his dead body. They will step over the bloodied body of God and send themselves there. And it's a very real thing. And Paul describes it here. And so it will happen. But notice the contrast in verse 10 again. He says, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. Do you see the contrast? See, for the person that is unsaved, that doesn't know the Lord, for them, it's vengeance, eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord. But for the person that does know him, it's glory. We're not looking for judgment and wrath. We're looking for something totally different. To be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. And so thus Paul draws the distinction between what is the wrath that comes from man and the wrath that is coming from God. And he also talks about the rest that will experience, be experienced from, you know, by us that know the Lord and the glory that we will experience in his presence in the day of his wrath. And so in verse 11, he says, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we cross into chapter 2, he further describes the tribulation that is coming upon the earth. That becomes his objective now He focuses in, expands on this topic of the coming judgment, that seven-year period that we talked about when we studied uh, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, the tribulation time. And he expands upon that now in chapter 2. He says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. So he presents the topic He's talking about that day when we, the church, will be gathered together unto the Lord. And that will begin on earth something so devastating, so destructive, so final. So he describes, he says, that you, you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. The day of Christ speaks of the day of the Lord. You may be familiar with that term. It's not speaking of the singular day that he returns, but the day of the Lord biblically refers to a period of time. Literally a thousand year long period of time known as the millennium or the day of the Lord. A day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Psalm chapter 90 verse 4 and also Second Peter chapter 3 verse 8 tell us a day is with the Lord as a thousand years. And so the day of the Lord or the day of Jehovah is that thousand year period of time where God will rule and reign on the earth. But that day begins with a seven-year period of time where God will pour out vengeance, retribution, wrath, judgment upon the world that has refused him, that has rejected him. That is what begins the day of the Lord, that seven-year period of time when that clock starts ticking again. If you weren't here for 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, get the tape, you know. But, but that's when the day of Christ begins and the Thessalonians were being told that that day had already begun. And Paul says, don't believe it, whether it comes by some spirit and someone in a meeting just says, thus saith the Lord, this is the tribulation that we are in. Or if someone writes to you a letter and signs my name at the bottom and says that we're in the tribulation, don't believe it. Or if somebody just tells you, if it comes in word, don't believe it. Because that day 
isn't here yet. And then he explains in verse 3. How do we know that the day of the Lord has not come yet? That the tribulation has not begun or hasn't come? Verse 3. He says, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. That's number one. And that the man of sin, reference to the Antichrist or the son of perdition, you know, the, 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 the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So he says two things will happen prior to the coming of the Antichrist or the, the day of the Lord. Number one is that there will be a falling away. The word in the Greek is the word apostasia, and that's not an Italian dinner. It's where we get the English word apostasy, and it means a a, a turning away from the Lord. And and that is one of the ways that this verse is viewed, is that there will be a turning away of the Lord. And to that, all of the Bible agrees. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, when he was talking about the last days, he said that because iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. It speaks of an apostasy or a turning away from the Lord because of the darkness of the times, because of the sinfulness of the day. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Timothy, and he said, Know this, that in the last days many shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. He says that in the last days there will be a proliferation of false doctrine, false teaching, and that many will turn because of it. They'll turn away from the Lord. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This know also that in the last days perilous or dangerous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, rude, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, incontinent, fierce, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. From such turn away. And he, and he lays out for them the conditions of what it will be like and he describes an apostasy, a turning away from the things of the faith. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks at the the very end of the chapter there, it talks about how that there is coming a time, a day, the day of the Lord, when there will be a great shaking, where he says, yet once more I will shake, not the earth only, but I will shake the heavens only, or also, and and signifying that the the removing of those things, that he says that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And it speaks of an apostasy, a turning away from the Lord. And it's amazing to consider what's happening right in front of our eyes so quickly and yet so swiftly we barely even notice it. But the amount of people that are turning away from the Lord, maybe not even directly, they still name the name, but in their heart they've turned away. Churches that have turned, turned away from the word of God, they've abandoned the anchor of the scripture. And they begin to recreate God in their own image, saying that things are acceptable with God that God never says that are acceptable. Turning the the, the commandments and doctrines of men into the elements or the things of God. And it's an abomination. It's apostasy. It's turning away. It's denying the only Lord God that bought them, Jude says. I don't know if you caught the clip that that was, you know, during the Democratic National Convention. You know, they had somehow removed the name of God from their party platform statement. That, you know, vision statement that declares what they're all about. And God's name was removed from it, just taken right out. And some of the opposition caught on to what they had done. And it blew up in the press. Hey, they've taken the name of God out of their party platform. And so halfway through their uh, convention, you know, they, they, during the middle of the day when everybody's working and nobody's watching and, the, the, you know, the arena is half empty, they, they had this vote in order to reinstate God's name onto the platform. And so the mayor of Los Angeles gets up and he, you know, reads what they're going to do. He asks, hey, we're going to make a change, but we need a two-thirds approval from the audience in order to make the change according to the rules. And he says, we want to put the name of God back into our party platform statement. And he said, how many agree? And you hear a crowd of people say, yay. And then he says, how many disagree? And an equal number of people shout, nay. 
And then he says, we two thirds. And then he realized he didn't have two thirds. And so he says it again the second time. And he said, how many think we should put it back in? And you hear, yay. And then he says, how many think we should leave it out? And this time, the nays are slightly louder. Nay. And then he stands there shocked. What do I do now? We want to put it back in. We don't have it. So he repeats the third time. And again, the yays and the nays. You cannot tell which one is louder than the other. And he simply says, we are passing this. We're putting the name of God back in the party platform. But do you realize what happened there? is that the nation, in large margins, said, no, we don't want God in our government. We don't want God in the helm of what we do. We don't want to honor God in the pledge of our allegiance to our flag. We don't want God in our schools or in our media or in our politics or on the platform of our society. We don't want him in our entertainment or in our discussion or at our tables or in our restaurants. We don't want him on our street sides. We do not want God in our lives. We are sufficient in ourselves to run our own lives. That is the statement that mankind is ever increasingly making towards God. It's the words of apostasy. And Paul says there will be an apostasy, a falling away first. There's other credible scholarship that suggests that this word apostasy in the Greek, it is simply the word departing, that it's a reference to the rapture, that there will be a departing. That is a mass exodus as God intervenes and removes his people from the planet. I'm not sure if I would stretch the text that far, but there's enough scholarship and agreement on it that I'll at least give it to you to chew on, to think through. But he says that that day will not come except there be a falling away first and The second thing, that the man of sin be revealed. Who is this man of sin? It's who we refer to in Christendom as this man called the Antichrist. A one-world ruler. A dictator that the Bible says will come on the scene in the last days. That will be the one man that brings the world into its final culmination at the second coming when we return with the lord at the end of the tribulation riding on horses what a day that will be you know but it says that the day of the lord doesn't begin until the man of sin the antichrist is revealed well how is the antichrist to be revealed well very simple he's going to wear a t-shirt and it's going to say mr antichrist And when he has that t-shirt on, we will all say, okay, there he is. We're in the tribulation. Let's go. No, 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 no. That's That's not really how we're going to know. Well, the Bible is clear that the revelation of Antichrist will take place when a covenant is brokered in the Middle East that brings peace to that region, stability, and also then allows the Jews to rebuild their temple. That there will be a covenant that is confirmed by this man that will last for seven years. A seven-year covenant. And the Bible says that is the sign. That is the thing that will mark the beginning of the day of the Lord. Or what is called the 70th week of Daniel. Or the seven final years of man's history upon the earth. That will be when the man of sin is revealed. We'll come back to that. In verse 4, he talks about his objective. What is the objective of the Antichrist? What is his goal? What does he want? Why is he coming? He says, Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, there are many people that think that the devil is nothing more than a fairy tale. That he's a mythical figure that parents use to scare their children into obedience. Or that he's just a cute little man in a red suit with a pointy tail and a pitchfork that pokes people, you know. And people have all kinds of twisted ideas about the devil. But let me tell you something, the devil is real. Though he may be invisible to human eyes, in the spirit realm, he is as real and tangible and visible as anything else. And he's powerful. And he has a very strong will and a very distinct goal. In Isaiah chapter 14, the prophet Isaiah 
peels back the curtain just a little bit and he lets us in on a little bit of Satan's history. Where did he come from? What happened? Where did this devil begin? He says in chapter 14, verse 12, seeing into the spirit, Isaiah speaks and he says, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? And then he says, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will set, sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Isaiah chapter 14, and also for your reading later on, you can read Ezekiel chapter 28, which also talk about the history and the destiny of this man we call, well, this being we call Satan. He was created by God. He was an angel. He was gifted. He was put in a position of very high authority in the heavenly realm. But the Bible says that he was lifted up in pride because of his beauty and because of his wisdom. And the result of that pride and the elevation of himself was the statement that we read in Isaiah chapter 14. I will ascend, I will sit, and I will be like the Most High God. That was his agenda, his ambition, what drove him. Jesus told his disciples in the Gospels, he warned them and he said, Take heed. I beheld Satan cast into the earth like lightning. And it was a warning to his disciples at that time against pride. They were saying, wow, the demons are even subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, be careful. I saw Satan fall like lightning to the ground. He was cast into the earth. He was thrown out of heaven. He was corrupted. He fell. He was cast into the earth. But something didn't change. His desire to be worshipped. His desire to sit in the temple of God. To sit in the throne of God. To declare himself to be God and to be worshipped. That did not change. And so he carried that with him into earth. And he corrupted man in the Garden of Eden. And began to draw man after himself. To receive for himself the worship of man. And be no fool. Satan has tried throughout the ages, to bring men to the point where men are going ultimately. You recall at the Tower of Babel, there was one world government, one world ruler, one world language. The people were one, and the Bible says that nothing would be impossible to them, and they were inspired satanically to build a tower into the heavens. An act of rebellion unified against God. It was the move of Satan to bring himself into this elevated position where man in unity would shake their fist at God and bow their will to him. But God intervened at the Tower of Babel. He confused their languages and Satan's goal was thwarted. He tried again in Daniel's day in the kingdom of Babylon under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebi had a dream and he was told what would happen throughout the you know, future of, 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 of man's history and the head of gold and the chest and shoulders of silver and the belly of bronze and the legs of iron and the toes of, you know, and he, and he gives him this thing. And in the ensuing chapter, Nebuchadnezzar builds an image, a statue of pure gold in defiance to God. He says, no, no, there's not going to be a chest of silver or a belly of bronze or legs of brass. There's only going to be a statue of gold because I'm it. I am the last world ruler, Nebuchadnezzar was declaring. And so the Bible tells us it was 60 cubits high. It was six cubits wide. There were six musical instruments that were to play when the sounding came. Six, 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 60 cubits high, six cubits wide, six musical instruments, an image, a world dictator, a world ruler. The people gathered, all told to bow down to this image at the sounding, but the plan was thwarted because there were three devout Jews that were there that wouldn't give in, that wouldn't bow down, that wouldn't pledge their allegiance to the beast, to this man, Nebuchadnezzar. 
you know, Satan hates Jews. I don't know if you know that. But the Jews have been a constant thorn in Satan's side from the beginning because they will not go along with his program for the world. He hates Jews. And he hates Christians. And he's not that crazy about Muslims either. You know, the difference is that they're on his team. That's, you know, it's kind of like, remember Terrell Owens? He played for the Cowboys and then the Bills, and now I don't even know where Terrell Owens is. He was the guy, he had a lot of skill, but you could, he couldn't get along with anybody, and they all hated him. And, and that's kind of like the Muslim's relationship with the devil. He doesn't like them because they're not going to go along with his program either, but they're on his team. Here's the ironic thing about the Muslims. You know, we hear about the suicide bombings and, and, and what they do. The Muslims, in, in, in unity, in totality, are Satan's suicide bomber. He's going to use them as a, as a collective being to go into Israel, and literally, they're going to blow themselves up. Not, not individually, but, you know, we'll, we'll get the story. That's what the Magog invasion is. They go in to annihilate Israel, but they all die. So, so they really kind of are, it's ironic, isn't it? But, you know, but that's why Satan doesn't mind them, because he's going to use them. There's a plan, you see. But he hates Jews, he hates Christians, he hates Muslims, because as long as those three groups of people are around, he cannot fulfill his plan, what Paul is laying out for us here in verse 4. Those things must be removed. They've got to be taken out of the way. And so he's going to do it. He's going to remove those things uh, you, you know, when he comes. So the Tower of Babel, the city of Babylon, and don't be a fool. Everything that has happened on the geopolitical stage from the beginning all the way up until the common era right now, Satan is orchestrating and he's moving world politics, nations into position to bring about what Paul is describing here in verse 4. It's all in his hand. You say, well, wait, you're saying that Satan has control. Yes, Satan has control. Luke chapter 4. When Jesus was tempted, remember, Satan came to him and he said, it says that he took him to a high mountain and it says that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. It was supernatural. And he said, all this will I give thee for it is mine to give to whomsoever I will if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus didn't argue and say, this is my father's world and no, you can't. No, because it was true. It has been given to Satan. That's what Adam did when Adam bombed in the Garden of Eden. He signed over authority of the planet Earth into the hand of the enemy. And Satan is orchestrating world events today. Now, God is higher. We'll get to that later too. Psalm chapter two, it's great. God's, God's like, go ahead, do it. <laughs> I'm stronger, I'm going to win, you know. And so it's all moving towards what Paul says here in verse 4, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You say, wait a minute, what temple? What temple? He's going to sit in the temple. There is no temple in Jerusalem today. So this must be sometime way off in the distant future because there's no temple there in Jerusalem. I don't know if you caught the recent flare-up again. And, and the only reason I'm bringing up so much political stuff is because there's so much political stuff, you know. But, but the, you know, the one side is, is basically trying to, you know, lambaste Mitt Romney because they, they got a recording of him saying publicly that there is no solution to the Middle East conflict. Duh! You know, they're, they're saying, look, he says there's no, 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 he, he, there, there is no solution to the Middle East thing. That's what he says. He, he says a two-state solution isn't going to happen. It can't happen. Because if you give the Palestinians the West Bank and declare it a sovereign nation, what you have done is you've just made an enemy nation to Israel that shares a border with Jordan and Syria that can reach Tel Aviv by seven miles. If there's only seven miles between the capital, you know, financial capital of Israel and the West Bank. And so that means if there's a, there's a two-state thing, the Palestinians have that West Bank there, you know, on that border. That means weapons, troops, 
resources can all be brought into the West Bank within easy reaching distance of Israel. Israel's not going to let that happen. And so they cannot allow it. They can give them the territory, but not give them the title. But that's not acceptable to the, you know, the Arab peoples, the Palestinians. They're not happy with that. They want sovereignty. That means Israel has no say over what comes in and out, who lands at the airport. They can't. And so Mitt Romney wisely said, there's no solution to that process because they don't want peace. Check that one off. They want Israel annihilated. And Israel's not going to hand them access to their city with missiles. It's, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So what will happen? Here's what's going to happen over in there. Well, let me read you Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, because God says it's not going to happen. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Zechariah says, The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel. Saith the Lord, which stretches forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Listen, verse 2. He says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. When they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. And truly, that's what that place and that problem is in the world today. It is a burdensome stone. And there is absolutely no political situation to solve the current crisis that is going on over there. So what's going to happen? And here's what's going to happen, and I believe very soon. And when I say very soon, I'm not talking years. I'm talking very soon. Like hopefully weeks, days perhaps. What's going to happen? Here's what's going to happen. Is that Satan's going to send in the suicide bomber. Whether they're provoked by a preemptive strike that Israel might make upon Iran's nuclear facilities or whether or not just it happens on its own course. It could happen either way. There's no, there's no assigned way that it's going to happen. But Satan will send in the suicide bomber and the region will explode. There will be a conflict that will not just be Israel and Iran, but it will involve every nation that surrounds Israel and they will in united front come against them. The fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 38, of Psalm chapter 83, what happens in Isaiah chapter 17 with Damascus, and at the end of the chapter it describes Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38, and what has been foretold through all the prophets that would take place in the end times as Satan sends in the Muslims to annihilate the Jews. But here's what happens, is that it doesn't work, because God is going to intervene And he is going to allow the Muslims to turn the sword on one another. And five-sixths of them will be wiped out, annihilated. They will become a mute figure in world politics after that point. And he will supernaturally protect his people Israel. None of them will fall. Ezekiel chapter 38, you read the end of the chapter and God says he's going to step in and it's going to be so clear that God defended his people that the whole world will understand that God did it. It will not be a coincidence. It will not be explainable. It will be supernatural. God's going to protect them. However, the conflict that is going to result worldwide The shockwave of the instability that happens because of what happens over there is going to affect everything on the planet. It's going to affect the world currencies. It's going to affect world food supply, world electricity and power structure. It's going to affect everything. There will be a ripple effect and there will be chaos globally. Out of that chaos, there will step forth a man that all of a sudden has a solution to all of the problems. He'll have the kind of history of a man that was like Joseph in the Old Covenant. A sob story. Going from slavery in some way, pulling upon the heartstrings of people, winning their allegiance through his past and what he's done. He'll have with him the wisdom of Solomon, knowing how to make things happen and move things through and find solutions and work through impossible situations. He'll have the likability of a King David. He'll win the allegiance of people. And he'll have the character and the compassion of Christ. 
And it says that the world will wonder after him. And part of what he does is that he will broker a deal that will allow the Jews to finally rebuild their temple. And what he does in that move is that he removes them from the stage of opposition to his ultimate agenda. He's going to buy Israel off with the temple. That's what he's going to do. Moving them off of the opposition list. That leaves only one. The Muslims are taken care of. The Christians are taken, I'm sorry, the Jews are taken care of. There's only one opposition force left in this thing. But the temple will be built at that time. And you say, well, wait a minute. The temple's not going to be built until the beginning. That's right. The temple will be built at the beginning of the tribulation time. So how long will that take? Let me put it in perspective for you. The Empire State Building went from concept to completion in 400 days. That means it was drawn up, and then 400 days later, it was completed. So if the Empire State Building, which at its time was the largest building in the world, in 400 days, how quickly can they build the temple that they are already prepared for? Concept and material preparation and plans are already drawn up and done. They're ready to go. They're waiting for the word. And they've already stated the way that we will recognize Messiah is that he will build our temple. And so everything is primed. Everything is ready for him to come. He will do it. But then, three and a half years into his reign, he's going to violate the covenant. He's going to break his agreement that he made with the people. And he's going to declare himself to be God. It's an event that the Bible calls the abomination of desolation. And following that move, pure hell lets loose on earth for the remaining three and a half years of man's history. Paul says in verse 5, and this is one of the most amazing sentences in all of the epistle. Read verse 5. He says, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? (laughs) Isn't that great? He was with them for three weeks. (laughs) And he made sure that they understood the abomination of desolation, the plan of the nations, the enemy of our soul, you know, all that. He, he, He gave them all of this in that time. Well, we're out of time. We were supposed to finish chapter two tonight, but I'm not going to keep you late. I'm going to let you go. So... Next week, we're going to talk about what is keeping Antichrist, or Satan literally, from fulfilling his desire and his plan of the ages. What is the thing that is keeping him, the one thing left keeping him, from fulfilling his plan? And how will he get the green light to go forward? So we'll look at that in our study next week. Listen, let me say this as we close and as the musicians come. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, I would highly encourage you to get off the fence. Because I don't know if you're following the things that are going on in the news right now and going on in the Middle East and, and how all of, all of the chips literally are in line. The dominoes are set up. I mean, everything is ripe and prime for for that time. And and I'm not saying to you that, oh, yeah, Jesus is coming this week or next week. or That's not what I'm saying. But here's what I am saying. Is that I am watching what's going on over there very closely right now. Until this thing simmers down, if it simmers down, I am on the edge of my seat constantly. Like I've never been before in all of my Christianity. Lord, this could be the moment. Because, you know, nobody knows the day or the hour or the exact order of how the events are going to flow. But, but I believe that the rapture of the church will happen before the kettle pot explodes. Because that is going to add to the chaos of what's coming. Listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, understand this. He took the full weight of the price that your sin deserved upon himself so that you could have peace with God and be secure in his kingdom. There is no reason why you should have to go through what is coming upon planet Earth, and he promises that he will spare us. If you don't know Christ personally, call on the name of the Lord. If you do know Christ personally, 
Listen, people are listening right now. The open doors that I myself have experienced sharing with people just in the past couple of weeks, people that have been so hardened to the gospel the whole time I've tried to share with them, family members, are at a point because they see what's going on. They're saying, what do we do? <laughs> you need to call upon the name of the Lord. Okay, how? <laughs> you know, how can I? And, and, and it's amazing. There is a softening. Don't waste this time. Take seriously. Pay attention to what's going on. Next week, we'll finish up 2 Thessalonians. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word tonight, that it doesn't change, it remains the same. We ask that you would give us wisdom, insight, and help, that you would give us understanding, and that you would just cause our witness to be bold in these days. We thank you so much, Lord, for the the price that was paid for us. We thank you, Lord, that any day now, We could hear the call. Come home. Enter into your rest. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. You tell us that there's an inheritance that's reserved for us in your kingdom. It doesn't fade away. It doesn't grow old. It's a hope that endures. There's a love that awaits us in eternity, Lord. And so we pray, Lord, that you would prepare us, that you would make us ready, that our hearts would be alive and on fire, that we would have lamps or oil in our lamps. We thank you so much for the timing of this word. Give us wisdom, Lord, that we might walk with you in righteousness in these last days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.